With time to reflect on the agreements and treaties reached at COP27, the question is, are our climate goals ambitious enough? I'm Oli Gyu. And I'm Shika Vorotor, and this is Pitch Pulse, a podcast from the Private Infrastructure Development Group. Pitch finances innovative infrastructure projects in sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia. We're committed to the economic growth of the world's most fragile communities, lifting them out of poverty with a strong focus on sustainability. Today, we look back at COP27 and ask if the climate conference has done anything to move the needle to make that roadmap out of this climate crisis any clearer. Infrastructure is a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, but it's also fundamental to progress. That's why Pidge is working hard across its portfolio to invest in sustainable infrastructure. We operate in countries that are most vulnerable to climate change, and our investments are already creating a better future for people and planet. So we were at COP to share our learnings and to catalyse others to push the boundaries, but also to learn ourselves. Sharing their thoughts on the podcast today are three Pidge team members who were at the event. Philippe Valahu, CEO of Pidge, Marco Serena, Head of Sustainable Development Impact, and Cecilia Sorhas, Chief of Staff and Head of Communications. We started by asking Philippe what he felt were the most prescient topics that were discussed at COP this year. I think for me, the point is that all of the discussions without fail focused on climate adaptation and resilience very specifically, as opposed to development themes more broadly or emission reductions more broadly. And that is probably brought upon the sense of urgency that was shared and you could sense across the rooms, whether it was private or public, including the financial sector. And you saw some of that, and I saw some of that in Glasgow last year. But I think this year it was much more evident for all to see. And I think there was also a a definite desire by all participants to look at very closely commitments that were made in Glasgow and to see where they are in terms of implementation. And this is why this was billed as the implementation COP. You can see some actors probably a bit on the defensive in terms of commitments they might have made in Glasgow and not necessarily delivered, and others showing what they've actually done. So it was pretty intense, very different from what we witnessed in Glasgow, but I think for all the good reasons. And Philippe, what do you think about that shifting focus off of emissions reduction in terms of what you're doing at Pidge, would you have preferred to see slightly more attention paid to emissions reductions, do you think? Well, I think from our perspective, and and we're not moving away from the topic, obviously, and if you look at our own portfolio and our focus on, for example, renewable energy and green solutions in, in transportation, for example, that is clearly central to what we do and will be central to our new strategy that we will launch next year. But it goes hand in hand with the with the discussion on adaptation and resilience as we look at some of the most vulnerable countries that are the countries in which we operate. When you think about our portfolio, 50% or over 50% is in the countries classified as FCAS countries. Those are some of the countries that are directly affected by the emissions and the built-up of emissions. I suppose the, the other thing which was quite interesting and you will have seen is the for the first time the um, the announcement of an agreement on loss and damage. And this is something that's been in the works and discussed for quite some time. But this is potential funding, because obviously we still need to see the money come through, but potential funding for vulnerable countries that, that are and continue to be hit hard by climate disasters. 
that is also a significant shift because yes, it has been discussed in the wings for some time, but for it to be now at the floor means there is a recognition of those who may have caused the damage and those who are suffering from that damage. And how do we address that? Because it will require a huge amount of money to deal with. Marco, uh, on the subject of, of loss and damage, how important could that money be if it materialises to the economies of the countries in which Pidge works and operates? Of course, it depends on how much the money will be and how it will flow. But one thing was clear for me at this COP, that is, yes, it's about uh, adaptation, uh, but it's also about the transition and it is about the sustainable development trajectory. So the financing needs have been looking at uh, holistically together, and they are staggering. Uh, I think the figures are 2.4 trillion a year in emerging markets and developing countries, excluding China. That is a lot of money. Most of the countries in which we are investing are seeing a debt crisis. And so the, the key thing is what finance is made available to these countries in order to make the type of investments that they need to do without uh, further burdening uh, their economies. And so debt-free finance is the key. And loss and damage must be part of that. Other things that were discussed were, of course, ODA and official development assistance, which is not anymore a sign of generosity, but is really uh, a matter of justice, given the cost of the development patterns for the other providers. And other things as well, like special drawing rights from the IMF, like voluntary carbon markets, which has been one of the key topics as well. And of course, philanthropists as well. So there's the, we, what we've seen is uh, some clarity around what needs to be funded, how much is going to cost, and what's the role of so-called debt-free finance. And loss and damage must be a key part of that. Now, for me, the challenge is, of course, the details, you know, who's going to pay for it, which countries are going to pay for it, how is it going to flow, how countries are going to spend it, what are the mechanisms around that to ensure that is that effectively the benefits flow to people. But also, at the same time, I think the, the key thing is, if the burden of paying falls with uh, public spending from OECD countries, so from those who are also providing ODA, how do we avoid that an increase in loss and damage means a further decrease in ODA? Because I think the, the key thing is that this money must be additional in order to work and make a dent for the transition that is necessary. Now, Philippe, you were involved in a panel discussing Africa's climate finance gap. How can African capital markets unlock private climate finance? I think the, the thing to remember first and foremost is that looking at sub-Saharan Africa, it faces an annual climate finance gap of about $250 billion. And you need to consider that only 10 or fewer countries on the continent receive over half of that green investment. And more importantly, which was a point that we touched on the panel, in terms of this limited climate finance, only 14% comes from the private sector, which is considerably lower than you would find on other continents, whether Asia or Latin America, for example. And so to address this gap, a rapid scaling up of private capital is, is, is critical. Key to that is the uh, development of local capital markets, both public, i.e. bond and equity markets, but also private, so the uh, bank lending. And you look at Sub-Saharan Africa, there are some leading financial centers that we know. But it's also the case that many of the capital markets are underdeveloped or they have a limited number of bankable transactions or investable projects. Transaction costs can be quite high. 
regulation is not what it should be. Tax regimes may be inappropriate. There may not be sufficient uh, market data available. And there's a narrow investor base. And so when you look at green finance specifically, Africa does lie behind other regions on many metrics, including the issuance of green and other labeled bonds. So that was an area that we touched on based on the experience that we have in developing local capital markets as we've done in Nigeria and Pakistan. And we announced at COP that we were doing in Kenya by the launching of a new credit enhancement facility in that country. And what those credit enhancement facilities allow the market to do is domestic issuance of bonds denominated in local currency to fund infrastructure or green assets. And that allows in turn pension funds, insurance companies, and other institutional investors who would otherwise never have invested in the asset class to come into that asset class for the first time. And that is quite transformative. And this is an area that we are going to, as part of the new strategy that we launch next year, scale up in a, in a significant way. And so when you do scale up those credit enhancement facilities, I guess what you then also allow for is the replication of similar facilities. And so, you know, by that process, you're kind of compounding the growth in some respects. Is that right? No, exactly. Because in the end, we're helping create something in Nigeria four years ago, in Kenya on the way shortly, in Pakistan a year and a half ago. You start to develop a market and you attract other players. And then ultimately, in an ideal scenario, we'd bow out because the private market and capital markets have become efficient and been able to do it. We're obviously not there, but the replication is indeed key. And one of the things we're looking at right now is the next countries in which we're going to deploy these both in Africa and in Asia. And obviously we have a short list of countries and or regions where we will want to do that. And so um, can you sort of drill down on the, the role of infra credits and how they play a role in addressing the climate finance gaps sort of more widely? So if you look at the, the funding gap, the green, the climate finance gap of about 250 billion in Africa, and you think that over 50% of that goes to 10 countries. So the gap to the rest of the countries is massive. But of that amount, only 14% comes from the private sector. And clearly, that is not sustainable because governments will not have the, the resources of the budget, especially as you're seeing stressed budgets, pressures on, on that that uh, some of the governments have accumulated. So the private sector needs to play a role. And for, to do so, it needs the framework to be able to come in with its market data, whether it's um, a tax regime, whether it's regulation. Those are all areas that when, for example, we launched our credit enhancement facility in Nigeria, we worked with regulators, we worked with partners like the Nigerian Sovereign Investment Authority to ensure that we would have a framework that allows domestic pension funds and insurance companies to come in. And in fact, four years ago, when Infra Credit Nigeria launched its first Naira denominated bond issuance, it was a smallish ticket, but it attracted 13 pension funds and three insurance companies, if my memory serves me right. So you think about the deepening of the investable or investable base from nothing to 13 plus three. And these are pension funds and insurance companies that had until then never invested in the infrastructure asset class through the bond market. If you start to do that, then, of course, that was a small, uh, in U.S. dollar terms, it was $40 million. Pension funds and insurance companies required a certain amount of guarantee, perhaps up to 100%. But as the investors become more familiar with the asset class, then all of a sudden that 100% is no longer needed. 
because they do their assessment and saying, well, maybe I need a 50% guarantee or maybe I need a 25% guarantee. And all of a sudden you have a very efficient market uh, in the making. Pakistan is on the way to doing the same thing since we set that up a year and a half ago and Kenya will be launching soon in Q1 of next year and more to come. Now, during COP27, Marco spoke at the International Energy Agency event on providing universal access to resilient energy systems by 2030. He tells us about the event and what he shared from the investor perspective. The event from the organized by the International Energy Authority, together with the business champions of the Race to Resilience, really put a spotlight on what energy systems need uh, to be resilient to extreme weather events, to increase droughts, to increase temperatures, to increase floods, to increase precipitation, risk of wild, wildfire. Uh, and it was a, a, a fascinating and very rich discussion with a lot of data on some of the so-called breakthroughs that are needed. Um, a lot of it has to do, in traditionally, a, a pitch we focused on uh, both power generation as well as energy access. But a lot of it, uh, a lot of uh, keeping energy systems resilient has to do with the way in which the infrastructure is built and with the system that the piece of infrastructure is part of and how that system works and withstand the, the stresses. What I shared is the approach that we've been taking. And I've started by uh, sharing the data that we've got in our latest um, TCFD report, which is looking at the, the exposure to climate risks of our assets. And it is quite staggering because every single asset has got uh, either a red flag or a high risk. And it is not surprising, given the markets in which we are working, uh, and this is unmitigated risk. But what that gives us is an understanding that the first thing we need to look at is what is the resilience of our assets to future climate shocks and changes. And we've incorporated that for a year and a half now in our investment decision-making process. So at very early screening, we'll be looking at what the risks are, what the implication would be for workforce for health and safety but also for the revenue streams of, of of that asset but that is not enough that is the resilience of the asset we also need to look at what is the resilience of the system that the asset is is part of or what is called more and more as the resilience through the assets and through the investment and is that asset improving people's resilience to future climate shocks and changes and if so it should be prioritized so uh, for us as um, as an investor with impact as a key priority that will be one of the drivers that we're going to stress even further in the in the future strategy so i've shared the approach i've shared also some of the mechanisms that we put in place in order to 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 make it work and i think the key thing was asking uh, some of the investors about examples. And one example I shared is the, is the work that has been going on in, uh, in Karachi in Pakistan with the investment that the company uh, K-Electric had to make in um, upgrading all the infrastructure for transmissions and upgrading from a system of cabling, which was both uh, weak, fragile, but also um, not safe to one that was much safer, the aerial uh, bundled cables. And a key difficulty of the company was financing. And I think what we've demonstrated there is that with the use of guarantees, you can bring in private investors in a way that you wouldn't. And that is a good investment because 
not only we've seen less blackouts and less load shedding in the utility, which serves 3 million people. So it's a, it's a very significant one. Notwithstanding the increased precipitation, we've seen better service for the people. We've seen a safer environment with less accidents and fatal accidents around the network. We've seen improved revenues from the company itself in terms of the revenue that is generating and so it improving the, the, uh, the position of the company. So I think these are uh, things that can be replicated. Um, we, I've also shared how we've tweaked some of the investment to take into account future climate risks, like, for example, the transmission lines of certain power stations that we had put in place, which we've changed in terms of the route in order to do that, uh, in order to consider for future risk of cyclones, for example. And I've also shared you know, some of the prime examples in the, in the energy sector that, that are looking at the system resilience. And one is, of course, access to energy, so the, all the work on, uh, on mini-grids um, uh, that we're doing in order to improve people people's resilience, but also some of the work about integrating into smart grids uh, the different sources of power. And I think the next frontier, especially at the urban level, is how do you make sure that when uh, extreme weather events happen, then not the whole power grid is uh, shut down, but you've got essential services uh, preserved and uh, and I think there's a lot of um, that technology can do, uh, but it is it is really a new way of investing that only that only happens if you take the long term view in terms of what the future shocks will be. And Marco, I wanted to pick up on the fact that the talk you gave was specifically focused towards achieving this goal by 2030. And I feel like the year 2030 comes up frequently as an important target to meet many of the goals that have been set out. Um, not only at COP, but just generally for for organizations. How critical is it that we do achieve all of this by 2030? Is it a nice to have or is it absolutely essential that in the next seven, eight years, we've got a lot of this sorted? Well, I think the message from the scientists at COP is really, really strong. 2030 is not a target, it's a cliff edge. And these are not my words, but the words of some of the leading scientists who who spoke at COP. And so already we are in a trajectory that will see increased climate risk and displacement and um, huge cost to adapt for about half of the population, 4 billion people. This is if we achieve everything that we are setting ourselves to achieve on the mitigation side which we're not on track to do. So this is likely to be an optimistic scenario rather than a, than a doomed one. And the key thing is that some of the impacts of climate change uh, reinforce each other. And beyond 2030, there will be no return for a number of these changes. And some of them are already, unfortunately, are already irreversible, like the melting of the high sheet. But At the same time, uh, there is still a window to both adapt and build smartly. And the key thing is, now is the time in which, uh, you know, that time frame coincides with the sustainable development goals. The difference with the past is that we can't say that if we don't achieve these goals now, then, you know, we've tried and uh, we can do that later. Uh, The time frame is is this. We need to reduce emission by 2025, 20, half them by 2030, and invest up to a level of 2.4 trillion a year by 2030. If we don't do that, 
the impacts will be catastrophic. And we know that, and we heard from the African constituencies, from the constituencies, from the countries which are most vulnerable to climate change, their urgency in terms of avoiding displacement, avoiding having to borrow in the international market every two years because of climate crisis, and the need to build an international architecture that supports that transition without delay. Gender Day at COP27 showed how inclusion of women in climate discussions is increasing, but their contributions are still undervalued. Cecilia shares her thoughts on whether attitudes to gender have changed over the years and whether she left COP27 feeling positive about inclusion. I think unfortunately we saw on on quite a few of the different different days and different panels a lack of women and the lack of inclusion in general. It was something that a few people addressed, but probably not strongly enough. So we definitely have a job to do there. I think what we have done this as pitch is that we have focused very much on how gender is is part of our projects and part of our, our pipeline and what the impact is on projects. And we, we have evidence that there's positive impact when women are involved, when women are included, and when, we, when you think about the gender impact first and foremost. So from an investment perspective, it's really, really important for us to, to have the gender aspect. I think when it comes to COP, there's, there's definitely, and, and other events as well, I think there's been a little bit of, there's a little bit of laziness. And there's an an attitude that, well, we don't have that many women who can speak on panels or we don't have that many voices, which isn't quite the case. And my organisers may have to work a little bit harder to get there. But I think what Pidge is doing, we, we have quite a deliberate focus on we are not attending panel discussions where we only have men. And that's something that we are pushing quite hard. And we're also making that we're making some 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 noises about that if we are at conferences where where that's the case, but we can all do more, and I think that's what we want to do as as well. Just bring in examples and bring in speakers that can have a say. And you mentioned uh, the positive impact that um, gender diversity can have in the climate negotiations, but of course, across the board, uh, gender diversity is important, especially within the realms of what Pidge does. So what is Pidge doing to ensure a gender lens is adopted in its projects? We are looking at what the constraints can be on, on impact for women, and then we're trying to address those problems head on rather than waiting till the end to see, oh, maybe we forgot about this or maybe we, we didn't consider this um, with a female lens on it. We're actually looking at that from the from the inception and from the project design, which is really important for us to, to make sure that women's voices are heard and that we get the input that we need so that the projects can be set up in the right way and also then have the intended impact for, for women. And you're already seeing the, the benefits of, of investing with that approach, aren't you? Yes, exactly. We are very much focused on community. We are focused on the sort of wider aspect of infrastructure. So the social infrastructure aspect as well. And this definitely gives us a bit of an edge in terms of looking at projects in a different way and thinking about them in a different way, which we hope that others will will follow and where others will, will copy what we're doing. Marco, what struck you in terms of inclusion? And do you think it was lacking at this year's COP? So what struck me on a positive side was the participation of young people and youth. I think it was quite deliberate from the from the presidency and 
and it made a real difference in my view to the perspectives in the rooms. So you had youth leader representatives from a number of countries, mainly developing countries and emerging economies, who were part of the delegations. So for part of the time, they were sitting in the delega- with the delegations. For part of the time, they were in a youth pavilion uh, where they were running events that delegates would attend. And I think that made a huge difference in bringing a different perspective and a different sense of urgency. Having said that, the overall level of inclusion uh, in, the, um, in the summit is difficult to judge. So this was the most attended of the COPs. Uh, now, some will say it's a good thing. Some will say it's, uh, it's not a good thing because it detracts from the negotiation. I, I, I think there was, there, there was a high level of activity by a number of constituencies, and that in itself will create a number of, a number of follow-ups going forward. And the, the thing that was striking on the, on the negative side, in my view, was, and, and Cecilia touched on it, is the, is the lack of women participation in some of the panels and events, which uh, was noticeable. Uh, but having said that, we had amazing women leadership in, uh, in some of the negotiations, including the, the leaders of some of the countries and the negotiating teams. So it's a mix, uh, it's a mixed picture. But one thing that will take away as Paige is that interaction with, um, with young people. I think that is something that will continue. I've learned a lot and we've learned a lot being there um, and we understood a lot more about the type of interaction that could be fruitful to an investor like us. So we're seriously considering how we can take that forward, for example, by setting up a youth council for Page in terms of advisory capacity in uh, keeping us on one side, keeping us on our toes in terms of accountability, but also keeping us more in tune with the markets in which we are investing. Because one thing is clear, we're putting up infrastructure that is going to stay there for the next 30 years, we're going to influence the development models of these countries. And the median age in these countries is 19, 20, 18 in some cases. So uh, we need to engage the future users of our infrastructure because what we are doing is trying to unlock their opportunities. So it makes sense to engage them much more closely. And that's one of the key takeaways, I think, for me and for Pidgin uh, from this particular COP. And Marco, how much of a focus did you see on the role of of technology and sort of nature based solutions? Uh, did did you have many takeaways in that respect? Yeah, it was there was a lot of discussion around both, and I think what really struck me is how both from government and private sector, there's a lot of investment in particularly in, in hydrogen technology. I think that is something which obviously the Egyptian presidency is investing massively on. And a lot of countries are, and I think there's a there's a real sense that uh, that can be over the next few years a game changer for high emitting industries, allowing industrialization on a lower emission path, which is critical. I've also seen a lot of interest in countries being part of the supply chains of the future, so the supply chains of renewables, for example in a way that doesn't just look at the export of materials, but look at how do you create the skills, technologies and jobs in those supply chains in order to keep value in developing and emerging countries. I think that will be a big, big conversation to meet both the climate objective with the socioeconomic objective. And I think nature featured more prominently than we've ever seen. So a couple last year, there was the big deal on deforestation. and. And I think 
the momentum is building in understanding that the relation with nature is critical for climate adaptation uh, and resilience, as well as for creating the solutions for the future that allow us economic development with a, with a lower emission uh, path. And I think uh, a lot more attention to the oceans and the health of the oceans and what that means, a lot more attention to forests, a lot more attention more generally to water and to um, the interaction of nature more broadly. I think that is a theme that we take away uh, as Page, uh, looking at the so-called green-gray infrastructure, so infrastructure that combines positive impacts on nature with built infrastructure. And that's something which we will uh, look at very, very seriously in the future. Of course, that also, there's a, there's a natural bridge with the negotiations that are going on towards the biodiversity COP, which is coming up in December. And there was a strong feeling that the things are interrelated. And so the urgent action is on climate adaptation, resilience, mitigation, and nature. And that will form the backbone of the sustainable development pathways of the future. So Marco, uh, closing thoughts on COP27, did you come away with the sense that we're going to see the urgent action needed to address the climate challenge over the coming years? I come out with hope, but with a clear sense that we're running out of time and we need to do more. So I think big advances on loss and damage on climate adaptation and resilience not enough action on the greenhouse gas emission reduction. And that's scary and that should be addressed and, and, and called out. But I think a lot of takeaways for us as an organization in ensuring that everything we do in terms of infrastructure contributes to climate adaptation and resilience, as well as mitigation. So that shift of focus will really be seen in, the, in what we do, but also that further interaction with, with youth and the future users of our infrastructure, as well as a really stronger focus on nature and nature-based solution in what we put in place. I think the final thought for me is the gap is so big that we can't do it on our own. We need to absolutely work with others more. Uh, radical collaboration was a, was, a, was a term that was used several times. I think that's what we aspire to, a sense of uh, purpose, urgency and radical collaboration is what we take away from COP. Thanks to Philippe, Marco and Cecilia for joining us on the podcast. You can find out more about our climate strategy on our website, pitch.org. You've been listening to Pitch Pulse. You can find our podcast on all the major platforms. Please like and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ollie Gyu. And I'm Shika Vawoto. Thanks for listening. <laughs>